Hey guys, this is Emmett. I am here with your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. And today I am with Sterling Bartlett. What is up? How's it going? Thanks for having me. So I was wondering if you would uh, introduce yourself a little bit for our listeners. Sure. Uh, My name is Sterling Bartlett. I'm a commercial illustrator. I mostly work in apparel, some advertising, and in my own practice, I've kind of just begun making a series of comic books. And those comics are what we're going to talk about today. How many have you done so far? Is it the two or do you have more that I haven't seen? So How Did We Get Here was released in January through First to Knock Press. Mm -hmm. I have a short in uh, Chris Gabriel and Kristen Middleton's Aeonic comics, which just came out this month. Congrats. Uh, Thank you. Those are the two in print so far. Uh, I have uh, a lot of other stuff little tiny stuff just on the web here and there. Okay, cool. And yeah, so today we're going to talk about two of your comics, which are uh, How Did We Get Here, which is extremely in our vein of uh, exhaust. And uh, so is Kali Yuga Ashkatan Attorneys at Law. Exactly. Yeah, which I love that you use the uh, Giga Chad guy. That's <laughs> yeah. the template for <laughs> uh, the attorney. I hadn't seen him presented in an illustration, so I thought I'd be the guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I found out the other day that that guy like is real. Like, I thought he was like a three D generated graphic, but that dude is like real. And apparently, he has like, like he's one of a triplet, and so there's just like two other dudes that also look basically identical to him. And he's super self aware, and he's he's like vaguely stoked on people being into him, but he wants like a very specific version of himself out there on the internet. Yeah. He won't come on podcasts. He won't talk to anybody. He's like, I don't know what a podcast is. I don't care. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's like, he's just being Chad. Um, So I guess we'll first talk about like, how did we get here? Which seems to be handling from a cultural bent. A lot of what we talk about on the show. I mean, basically how did we get to a point where all things seem exhausted and we're like out of ideas. And the premise of your comic is this weird little robot from space comes to explain to the reader from like literally the aliens third person perspective, like what seems to be the problem or many problems on earth, possible answers to the question of how did we get here? And you have a few, I loved your one on recycling, which was like recycling was just a scam for like hooked up mobsters to figure out what to do with their garbage. And then they like green wash. It was the first green wash. Yeah, exactly. Through environmentalists who were just like, yeah, if we just reuse, reduce, recycle, it'll be fine. But of course all that ends up in like the third world. Yeah, exactly. Greenwashing that uh, caught a perfect media storm at the perfect time, the point now where it's just completely hegemonic and we don't really think about it, but uh, you know, nine times out of 10, you're not really recycling anything. No. And it's like, I mean, recycling is super inefficient. There was also that whole scaremongering about like the cyclones of garbage in the ocean, which is actually mostly just like industrial fishing gear and like not stuff from landfills anyway. So that's also like another thing. And the problem isn't like landfills or recycling in general. It's like whether or not the developing and third world has the infrastructure to accommodate that. So like China refuses to take anyone's recycling. Right, they stopped taking everyone's stuff. So it got uh, kind of uh, like a micro recycling diaspora happened in developing countries. And since they don't have the infrastructure to take care of it, 
a large portion of it actually gets incinerated. Sometimes mm -hmm. it tries to get compacted down further. Sometimes it gets buried, but it's not recycled with a capital R at, like we think it is. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, that just so perfectly captures like, you know, the, one of the themes on the show is that like nothing is what it says on the tin. It seems like every solution we drum up with, not every, but many, you like peer behind the green curtain and it's like this even opposite yeah. <laughs> of like what it is. Exactly. I, it may have been your actual show. Somebody's podcast recently was uh, talking about how in the 90s there were, there were uh, little recycling symbols on clear plastic uh, containers that were pure marketing. Oh, that wasn't us, but that's uh, very funny. Yeah, but it was a it was it was a complete marketing initiative because at the time, at least, there was no way to fully completely process clear plastic bottles. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, pretty wild. So you have like a few answers. It's like set up in a Q and A format where it's like, how do we get here? Like potential answer. One of the surprising ones was like urban daredevils. <laughs> and I was like really not expecting that to show up mostly because I hate watching those videos, watching those videos. Like they make my palms sweat like yeah. immediately. But I was wondering if you could sort of like walk us through how you came to that and like what you see them representing. Well, in the comic, it, it's a, it's a sort of almost an epistem where this little, well, like you said, alien robot, his name is Void, comes to earth and sort of gives you the, chronicles the reasons that uh, we may be uh, sort of falling short as a, uh, an intergalactic species. I wanted them to be a huge mix of humorous, very serious, and somewhere in between. And in that specific case, I have, which that little vignette is called Urban Daredevils, I have a couple kind of holding hands at the top of a uh, lightning rod at the top of an extremely tall building, and it's all kind of illustrated in a fisheye lens to give a give the feeling of like dread. And there, it is something I, I've seen on social media for about the last five, maybe 10 years, where uh, you'll see people climb to these great heights on buildings or uh, sort of sit in front of trains and then move at the last moment or get a picture at the last moment or whatever. And daredevil is not exactly the right word, but the sort of uh, like devil may care attitude and uh, threat to literal human life that people will go to in order to get a picture for the internet has always baffled me. And like mm -hmm. you said, you get itchy and you get vertigo looking at these things and you sort of vicariously get sick and you wonder what's wrong with these people. Uh, but it's enough of a cultural force that these people aren't particularly singular. This is a thing, you know? And I don't know why that is. I don't know why it's caught this sort of public imagination, but there is some sort of like conservative, like inside of me that it's like, don't do that. What are, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, why are we doing this to ourselves? Well, yeah, I was sort of thinking, um, I was doing the dishes last night. That's like really when I'm like sitting on the throne or doing the dishes is where like ideas come to me <laughs> or like the shower. Right. Typically. Right. So I was doing dishes last night and I was like thinking about this. And one of the things I always do is like, you know, I have this like knee jerk conservative in me as well. That's just like, this is new and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like this, this means that everything's falling apart. And so, like this is the sign. right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. This is synecdoche for like greater decay. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, what I like to do is like challenge that a little bit. And I was like, okay, 
So like what were daredevils like before? And to me, they seem, as far as I know, like a product of modernity. So we get the famous French guy who walks from the tightrope from like the Empire State Building or something like that. I think it was uh, between the towers, the Twin Towers. No, between the Twin Towers, yeah. Yeah, those have just been retconned out of existence after 9-11. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whenever I see them in a movie, I'm like, what are those? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he walks between those. And like, that's obviously a media spectacle. But he's seen as like unique this is a particular feat you know david blaine is somebody in this in this trajectory but then i thought of like so i'm thinking of like mediums right like i don't think tv was happening then there's probably some film footage of that i'm sure there's photographs right but all of this is for some sort of audience in a way right so you have that and then i was thinking about like how media changes the daredevil over the course of the last hundred or so years. So whether it's like Houdini or like Evil Knievel, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to do a very specific act using a bunch of gas guzzling automotive things at the peak of American auto for television at the moment. Television is at like its apex of like four channel density. So there's that. And then there is the like selfie cam of the current daredevil. But what's interesting about the transition to those is that there is an increase of amount of daredevils, like you've pointed out, and that there something seems different about witnessing somebody do something in third person. And then the way the selfie cam looks is in second person where it's your gaze looking down on them. And that yeah. feels like a different intimacy. Yeah, in the comic, the actual frame is uh, your view from a cell phone at the end of a selfie stick. Mm-hmm. So you are somewhat implicated in this this daredevilry in that. Right. And I think it is meant more, let rather less to impress or inspire and more to shock because of that perhaps. Mm. So it's, me, I don't know exactly what that difference is. But. Right, right. Well, I mean, we can tease it out, right? So to me, it's sort of like, I've been thinking about it in terms of society of the spectacle to society of the parasocial. Mm. Okay, which, I like that. you know, so we could say that evil can evil spectacular, right? Like that's a big media event to watch that guy yep. ride a motorcycle over, you know, and the, the idea is that he's this hero, right? Yes. Like, I a hero of nihilism almost. There's no reason to be doing whatever he's doing other than to do it, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that any of these acts have gone away, right? So like Alex Honnold doing the free solo of yes. El Capitan. I mean, that's a probably one of the greatest athletic achievements in human history, yeah. but like is in the more traditional vein. But um, when we get to the society of the parasocial, I think it's best to contextualize these daredevils in the larger media ecosystems and platforms that we experience, which are all about a sort of para-intimacy. Yeah, I'm thinking specifically about this Instagram. uh, To to come up with this little vignette, I started following tons of these people on Instagram. and, and. I wrote this over a year ago and I've since filtered out, but there's one that I still follow that's really interesting because it does drive this kind of specific para-intimacy. And I think they're Ukrainian kids 
And what a lot of these accounts are Soviet bloc, which is a yeah, whole yeah. other thing I don't know what to make. Exactly. <laughs> I'm having difficulty like micro contextualizing this stuff. But these kids golf off of like wind turbines out in the middle of fields. Uh, they set up like a little driving range and they'll just whack golf balls off of the top of these huge windmills or they'll, uh, they'll like do graffiti in moving train cars that have been emptied and hop between train cars while they're in motion. Dude, oh my God, my stomach oh, it's, is like it's turning. <laughs> yeah. And so their identities are perfectly hidden and they, you know, no visible skin and everything. And like, they're like fun terrorists or something. Yeah. But because they're filming this high, hot, like fast paced action, you really feel like you're part of it. It is that parasocial thing you're describing. Yeah, and I think that that's, so much of characterizes our, our world. Like one of the things that the, one of the feelings I got over the course of reading, how do we get here is like, you get this increasing feeling as it iterates through the different possible answers of instability and almost paranoia. Right. Because everything has like, everything's the Maltese Falcon. Exactly. Right. And I was thinking about, I was watching this weird clip of this Christian comedian from the nineties and oh. I retweeted it and he's just doing, you know, he's like, why do we drive on parkways and park on driveways? And you're like, haha, you know what I mean? Like typical, like middle American, like schlock yeah. uh, that would be popular in like that vein of Christian. And then he goes on this insane monologue about this satanic killing in Louisiana where they like divvied up parts of the woman's heart as communion. And he explains like, it's not about killing. It's about consuming life force, you know? And then he transitions to like, when does yogurt go bad? Like, how do you nail jello to a wall? And Wait, then he, I'm misunderstanding something. It, he, he breaks into sermon and it's that part's not humorous. In it's any not way. humorous at all. It is just like totally dark. Oh, good Lord. Okay. <laughs> and then he tried like, this was a quick cut. So maybe somebody rearranged it for effect. Okay. You know? And then it ends with some like inspirational thing. Like if somebody comes to you with this hard time or whatever, you better have some Jesus on tap. And then it ends. And I was thinking about this and I was thinking about moral panics. Yeah. And I was thinking also about the, you know, the great joke of the paranoid style in American politics, the famous Hofstra essay is that like, he's fucking paranoid about Barry Goldwater. Exactly. <laughs> to equal extent. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's what that's about. And so I was thinking about like, what, what was that type of paranoia like? And to me, because things weren't all hooked up yet via the in internet, it was geographic. Yeah, it was regional, right? Right, right. Like if you think about like no country for old men, what makes Anton Chigurh scary isn't just that he's entropy incarnate, which is part of it. It's that he seems to come from nowhere and no one has a real explanation for him. Like he's also maybe the, the most mobile figure in that movie. He's right. You know, right. Transitory, like. Exactly. And it's, and it's a homing beacon that he's after. It's all about geography. Yeah. Right. It's just like, who are these people that live down South and believe that these satanic killings are going on. And then mm -hmm. like, for them, it would be like, who are these weirdos that live in Arkansas that wear Marilyn Manson t-shirts and like kill children in the woods, you know? Yeah, like actualized in a way that it isn't any longer. Exactly. But now it's sort of like, is there someone right next to me digitally that is spying on me or that has Absolutely. the wrong beliefs or yeah. is, but it's not actual physical proximity. It's this other thing that's just humming in the background.
Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this since that FBI tweet the other day that's like, you know, telling you how to rat out your family members, right? Like, And then the whole Lego set thing. Right, right? exactly. And like, then it turned out that it wasn't even opened. Like, right. You know, it's like... But, but that tweet specifically about like how to like, uh, you know, find out if someone is extremist views in your own family, you know, in that case, it's like the call is coming from inside the house, right? Yeah. Like, like you say, it, it's not... Temp, uh, it's not like um, geographically distant from you. It could be anywhere. And since this kind of paranoia is no longer tied to region or physical space, it's more pervasive. It, mm-hmm. It's actually airier in that in that way. Right. Exactly. It's like you never like that's the reason why you couldn't really make remake Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Now it's because we right. all already live like that. Yeah, hundred percent. Where you don't know if the person you're looking at is the person you're looking at. Exactly. Yeah. You know. I think a lot about like people's personas across platforms even Mm. on -hmm. social media. Because like on Twitter, I'm like maybe a little bit sharper and more acerbic. Uh, I don't don't really have, like I'm not even really on Twitter that much. But like I'll bitch about things I'm upset about or whatever. And then on Instagram, it's more like, look at this art I did. You know, like here's my (laughs) comic or it's like, it's like, it's your marketing self and more marketing. Exactly. So even in my own uh, body, I can recognize like two separate, you know, tendencies that can occur outside of physical space, like uh, projected onto two different platforms. Yeah. It's like a a schizophrenizing of what we're even talking about, (laughs) you know, like it can even multiply within the self. No, I think that's true. I mean, um, there's a recent scrap that's going down between um, this guy. I don't, I don't know. I know only the barest details about this and I'm just going to talk about it generally because at a certain point, if you start talking too much about online personalities, you die inside without knowing it. Um, But there's this guy, Caleb Maupin, who uh, wrote this book about YouTubers that he seems to have pretty compelling case for being assets Oh right? wow! Okay. One of them is is Vosh. Okay, sure. Um, and I'm like, sure. I don't know. Like, this is sort of that. Like, is this person who they say they are like paranoia that feels like digital Nixonianism? Yes. yes. <laughs> um, you know, like uh, the what's the movie with uh, Gene Hackman? Uh, the conversation. Conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? I just watched uh, another Gene Hackman. Um, sorry, but yeah, the conversation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, so a lot of it feels like feels like that, but. Um, you know, I was, I was looking at all of this stuff and I was like, we literally have like no idea what the fuck is going on at a discursive level in our society, like at all, at all. So I recently got published by the American mind as I slowly, uh, I guess, quote unquote, pivot right and quietly lose friends on the left who don't talk to me anymore. And I was just like, you know, I should check out their podcast. I should see what they're all about. You know? So I was listening to it last night and they were talking about the feature I got placed in was the one on domestic terrorism. And mine was really the only one that wasn't directly about the Biden thing. It was about the green left's impact on infrastructure as a form of legal domestic terrorism. But they were talking about Joe Biden's like domestic terror initiative. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And one of the guys, it was so smart. He was talking about the new Loki show. Um, Yeah. And he said, you know, he was like, it's an aspirational fantasy for woke liberals because it's basically about an intergalactic intersectional police federation that goes around and corrects the timeline of history. (laughs) Wow. 
And I was like, yeah, it's as they say, it's a woke Praetorian guard. Exactly. <laughs> That's a hell of a framing. Um, I, yeah, I just kind of like, I was like, I was like working out in my living room and I just kind of like kneeled on my little yoga mat and was like, oh man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I dig it. Yeah, and like when I take a look at sort of what you're talking about in Kali Yuga, Eshkaton, Attorneys at Law, is that you're basically, it's an advertisement for a legal company that's basically inviting you to become a walking psyop or to get psyoped, you know? And it's hard to tell the difference between those things. Well, there may not be a difference at a certain level. Yeah. Uh, is, is I think a sort of like distant point of that little blurb. I mean, also just given the name, like you could also read that as saying like, you know, we can, we can end it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Annoyed by the internet. We can end, we can end that for you, you know? Right. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that you like nailed in the Kali Yuga one is the, the moralizing infographic fatigue where it's Man, like, the, right. Because, you know, you work in the design and graphics sure. space. And everything looks like highlights for kids. Yeah. That's like, a what great, do you have an account of this aesthetic shift or whatever, or that you've noticed? I, mean, I, I think it's been documented. This is not a, a hyper novel take, but I, I think I've said before that it is the uh, Matisse fandom to moralizing infographic pipeline. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> Well, especially, especially late period Matisse, right? When his hands don't work and he's using the scissors to cut the... You know, yes, exactly. It's, it's hyper flat. It's, you know, basic palette, you know, your, your box of eight crayons drawn in crayon in in some cases or digitally drawn, uh, you know, carefully made to look like it was done in crayon. Uh, The levels of faux naivete are like sort of too layered to parse at this point, Mm -hmm. but uh yeah it's you know there's a great book called understanding comics by this guy scott mcleod he put out in the late 80s and he has this um sort of graphic of uh you know where comics are universal and it's just a smiley face all the way up to like a hyper well illustrated uh really graphically rendered face and that becomes super specific so if you're gonna be like really moralizing and you know kind of have this like black and white view of what is good and what is bad. You have to be all inclusive. So you go strictly to the smiley face, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you don't want anyone to recognize it as something it is not. So you have to include everything. So that's why everything is so flat. All the forms are sort of like gormless and like, you know, rendered gelatinously and like, I, I think it is, uh, I don't know if anyone has like verbalized this, but I think it's a, and I, it, it's a push toward like a visual inclusivity. I think that's, that sounds novel to me. I mean, that makes sense. So a few months ago we did like a weird essay type thing where we took like a Leo Strauss lecture and uh, some Boris Groys and then anti-art king, Brad Trammell. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, to sort of like talk about the self-design of American paranoia which mm-hmm. fits into the Kali Yuga Eshkaton thing, right? Like you're psyoping yourself as you psyop other people type of thing. Exactly, yes. But one of the things that Boris Groys talked about in the essay that we mentioned was how there's this like ceaseless dialectic that happens with like the flat over design of literally every single facet 
of being a human subject. And then the modern tick for exposing the brutal truth. Okay. And so if you can do like both of those things, like people always want to peer under the flat layer, but if you can deliver both at the same time, right. Flat design, late Matisse moralism where that exposes brutal black and white truths about the world, you are satisfying both of those things at once. You may have something there because if you look at like my illustrative style in between the two comics you're referencing, how did we get here is very simply rendered. Mm-hmm. And that was intentional to not exactly ape the kind of flat design we're talking about, but to keep it open enough to inclusivity where if, if this uh, sort of, we'll call him an alien, whatever, a extraterrestrial entity is telling you what is wrong that wrong should be all encompassing and thus feel more true. Yeah. 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 I mean, it reminded me of um, the early God, who was it that uh, Yonan Vasquez was drawing for first? Was it slave labor comics or something like that? Yes. Yeah. But they had uh, the the style in your thing reminded me of certain early slave labor stuff from the nineties. The idea was just to keep it as open as possible. Yeah. could see a little of themselves in it. You get over to Kali Yuga, it's a little bit more finely rendered, a little bit better tools used, you know, because it has a specificity to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more embodied in yeah, a recognizable exactly. figure and things like that. Oh. Yeah, I mean, just the constant IV drip of stuff is so weird. Like, so last year, maybe two years ago, I wrote this thing on how all this late 90s sounding like rock is coming back. Oh, okay. So there are bands that are now like openly referencing like Jane's Addiction and stuff like that and like Deftones and all of this and they're young. And I was okay. like, man, you, I, I was like, at some point I was like, that's never coming back, right? Like no one is ever, no kid in like 2020 is ever going to be like, nothing shocking by Jane's Addiction changed my life. I can't even picture what it would be aping at this point. Like, R- right, right. Ironic or something? I don't, I don't no, know. No, but they sincerely like it, right? And but what I was thinking about is like the whole pastiche of like a lot of 90s rock operates in the context of like suburban boredom or just yep. boredom in general, right? Yep. Like, there's that kind of sighing quality to it. Like, you can't listen to uh, like Dinosaur Jr. and not be like, Jay Maskus is bored out of his fucking yep. mind. Oh, 100%. Deftones is a great example. Like, he's just sort of, like, listlessly, like, drooling over the microphone. I mean, the song bored off their first record. (laughs) Like, Uh, you know? That's so interesting. I I am, like, woefully unaware of pop music, except for, like, a tiny sliver of, like, I don't know, SoundCloud rap and whatever weird, like, noise music is on. uh, Totally. Whatever. I don't know. But uh, I would be really interested to hear this. Late I'll send 90s you, yeah, I'll send you the piece, right? And I, the question I was trying to answer, and I don't think I did successfully, but it points to something you bring up and how do we get here was that like, I understood this, even though I was like late to the party age wise, as like something I recognized in my immediate physical surroundings, because not everything was hooked up. And I lived in a suburb where you could hear the highway at night. Yes, absolutely. And, and it was fucking boring. Yeah. You know, you'd leave the house for hours and come home and maybe somebody either is a sticky note for you on the fridge that a friend called. Oh, yeah. 100%. You know, 
while you were uh, out being bored and driving around ceaselessly. Someone with tried other to friends because they were also out bored ceaselessly. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I was like, that it's not that's not how it is for kids these days, right? Like Mark Fisher talks about it in two things. He talks about it in a brief little thing on the death of boredom is a death of a certain type of productive negativity. Yes. Yes. And then he talks about it as like the constant feeding on like high calorie stimuli, even in the background that he saw in his students when he was teaching in the UK. Yeah. I mean, that specific vignette owes a lot to an essay he wrote. I think it's the second one you're referencing where he talks about a kid having headphones. In yes. His- that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. So this, this vignette owes a lot to that because the kid at some point says, Oh, I don't worry. I'm not listening to music. And he's like, well, why the fuck do you have them in your head? And the kid's like, it's soothing. Yeah. Essentially like, oh, something could be piped in there. So I want to stay connected, even though there's nothing to be connected to at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I see uh, boredom as a generative proposition, generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have less of it in my life. I'm looking at dual screens while I'm talking to you now. And I have a, you know, a phone in front of that. And, you know, there's a million things I can, you know, take my, my stimuli and my, my concentration away from me. But as you describe, I grew up in West Texas in the mid nineties. Oh, where in West Texas? If you don't mind me asking. San Angelo. Okay. I was just out in Alpine. Oh, not terribly far away. I had uh, a lot of friends who were actually from Alpine that lived in San Angelo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and what that meant was like, uh, we would go skateboarding group of friends and you would drive around endlessly (laughs) Yeah, that were, you know, almost entirely empty at night. Uh, I lived kind of close to a large lake and you would hear boats or jet skis out there and you had no access to it. So it was this weird, like oppressive thing to hear people kind of having fun in the, in the middle distance, which you had no access to. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I really am old enough and grew up with a specific set of circumstances such that I see a, a black and white difference between the way we live now and the way I grew up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I remember being at a friend's house when I was like talking to a girl on AIM and right and he wanted to play world of warcraft so i couldn't be on aim at his computer right so we're hanging out in his basement and i remember like it's the midwest right so it's snowy in like march Ah, and i am literally running between our houses to like check my computer to see if she has messaged me back and both of our parents are like what the fuck is wrong with you but like that level of work to just like see an AIM message to chat to chat was like unbelievable now (laughs) I mean I I grew up drawing uh my father was in the military and we moved a lot and sometimes that meant you know you get to a new place and you have a hard time as a kid you know enmeshing yourself in whatever the other kids are doing at the time or making new friends or whatever I filled a lot of that time with drawing and Mm -hmm. um that has been generative for me in my life. I'm a professional illustrator. It's the way I make a living, uh, you know, largely through drawing or design in some way. Literally, had I not been bored for so long, I may not have honed that skill that is, you know, to whatever degree, helping me to get through life now. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, this is just going to make me sound like 
uh, an old person and that's that's fine but like i wonder how like generative skills are built now in the face of like headphones in your ears all the time phone on all the time things in your head playing music podcasts whatever uh, movies on demand i just wonder how much of that attention uh gets just sapped into the ether Right. I mean, Bo Burnham talks about that in the song about turning 30 in his inside special, which is good. I recommend it. But, you know, it's a song. First, you watch him turn 30. He's just like sitting in front of the clock, you know, and then then he has a song about it because, you know, he's always been this like boy genius. Sure. He's like the young, cute comedian guy. Right. And so but that's over now. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. Like he's 30. You know, yeah. like he was like, that's so it's a song about that. And then he's talking about how Zoomers like make fun of him for being out of touch. And he almost breaks out of the song to be like, your phone is ruining your fucking life, but I'm out of touch. Like, <laughs> you know, and this is the sort of thing. But I actually, I was talking to a skateboarder. I can't remember where or when. I think I was just struck up conversation with somebody. Oh, no. This was in when I was living in New Mexico. I was talking to a guy who like ran a skate shop. Okay. And, you know, he'd been skateboarding forever and it's been in like Arizona and New Mexico forever. So he was skateboarding in the nineties in those areas when it was extremely unfucking cool. <laughs> like, right there. Yeah. Yeah. To be doing that. Uh, being from West Texas, I'm sure you understand that yeah, type of the, vibe. It was not yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. Best ever death metal band out of Denton. Type oh, of yeah. thing. <laughs> he said, what's interesting now is that the kids who can manage to stick with it, get better way faster sure. than anyone else did because they have high def YouTube videos yes. where they can break down the move as they yeah. emulate it, which, you know, if you're trying to do that on like an old, like, uh, you know, birdhouse tape yeah. from the nineties, the buffering gets in the way. I mean, not to mention the interlacing on a VHS. You can't even see what's going on unless it's moving. Right, right, exactly. And it has to be, or it has to be like so big that you can look at it, right? In the way that the VHS version of Blade Runner forever changed production design. Right. Right, because so many production designers and stuff like that grew up renting it and they could pause and be like, what is that? You know, but that's a static, yeah. yeah, that's a static thing, right? He said, but the problem is, is that fewer kids have the stick-to-itiveness this I to see. suffer through the trick. So that's I the trade-off. Can. It's yeah, like becoming an illustrator now will get as good as I am at like 18 if they can stick with it, but fewer of them will stick with it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there's also just to bring like uh, just the, the class awareness tick in the back of my head has to like just say this as like word vomit. You also had to pay for the $20 uh birdhouse vhs it's free to watch on youtube totally totally exactly matrices of ease now even right exactly and like the phone's an expensive upfront cost but like then you got it yeah and more and more people have them you know like it's very rare to see someone of almost any class background without a smartphone at this point oh sure yeah you can get burners now i think yeah yeah you can get smartphone burners Yeah. yeah so Like, all I can see when I see that is, obviously, it's cool. We might see some, like, astonishing greatness happen because the people who stick through it get better so fast. So that's, like, interesting to me. But what it speaks to is that, and maybe you can relate to this, is that it will be a a society with greater extremes and less cultivation. Like, the level of connoisseurship 
will plummet because part of suffering through something and never being perhaps even great at it, right? Because it goes shit to suck, suck to good, good to great. And it gets right. harder and, and harder and longer and longer. Yep, it's right. The gaps get bigger in between those things. But part of that process is becoming familiar with something and acculturating yourself and developing taste. Yes, I, I would also like, there, there's like a, a conversation that I've had a lot recently that runs parallel to what you're describing. And it's, it's the fact that because there are fewer spikes of greatness, A, that connoisseurship that does exist around those spikes of greatness becomes sharper and more pronounced and more critical, which mm -hmm. is another step against someone in the position of like the person that is, is like the, the stick to person or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, that is another um, sort of dig against their ability to do well because we live in a, uh, a hypercritical society because I think in part, there are fewer people attempting to do and quite a few more people attempting to critique. Right, well, and I would also say that there are just, because of the ubiquity of self-design, there are more and more people just out there in those spaces. Oh yeah, you have spectators. Right, exactly, exactly. Like they have a really great term for it in, um, MMA for like certain types of fans. They call them filthy casuals. Okay. Which I thought was so good. It's like a fan that only goes there for the big fights of the best fight, like the quote unquote best, most spectacular fighters okay. or whatever. Yeah. They don't know. They don't understand the depth of the card or they don't care about right. the rankings. They don't give a shit about anyone's technical expertise. Yeah. Like, they're getting they're, late. The they're, last Right. They're quote unquote boring fighters who, if you know anything, are like fascinating to watch. I'm sure. They, yeah. They don't fucking care about those. They're filthy casuals. <laughs> <laughs> filthy casuals. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like a whole guy that has a YouTube channel. It's called the filthy, filthy casuals guide to whatever. And it's his attempt to like increase the literacy of like oh, MMA for whatever it is, which is That's really cool. Yeah. Really cool. But I feel like, so much of society now is like living in a horde of filthy casuals. It's a great way to put it. I'm definitely going to use that term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you're taking a look at this and like when you're illustrating, like, okay, so I work mostly with language, right? Like I'm right. a writer because I drew all the time as a kid. My dad was an artist. Right. But at some point writing was it because I just, enjoyed moving language around on a page. At the end of the day, that's really what you have to be in it for. Absolutely, yeah. You know, you, that has to be enough for you. <laughs> you don't have to get by. Sometimes my senses are kind of dull in this. And I wanted to ask you, because you've been creating art for so long, like what are some like trends you've noticed or things that have stood out to you over the last like 10, 20 years? And like, do you have any insights into like, visually, aesthetically, where our society is heading? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I have dipped into a lot of the overlapping Venn diagrams of what could be called art worlds. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, fine art, art with a capital A, like medium to low gallery tier stuff. Uh, I've worked in the world of illustration. Uh, I guess, so let me frame the conversation in two camps, right? Let's yeah. talk about like fine art stuff first. I'll try to be brief and then we'll talk about illustrative trends. Okay. Uh, in fine art, there is a trend that has gone away from what they were calling like sort of zombie abstract expressionism, meaning like no one was drawing figurative stuff. They were just splattering, you know, in a Pollock 
type uh, sort of like an, an attempt to to get art away from language and away from the the sort of like containable or or narrativized. That has shifted to what is now like sort of jokingly being referred to as like zombie formalist representation. People mm -hmm. are drawing these like really airbrushed cartoony like compilations kind of like taken from the internet and like it's sort of like post netty but also like really narrative in its form. And there are a couple of people that are really good at that, but there is just a horde of people that are just aping that style. That's a huge trend. Um, I don't know verbally where that comes from. I don't know mentally where that comes from. I would have to say it is just this glut of information if I was gonna be like an armchair psych guy about it. Uh, it's just the fact that you have so many screens at your disposal and so much information rushing through, like these paintings will have like, you know, photo real daisies and a Donald Duck and then a, a piece of an old Matisse painting and they're hyper colored and exit through the gift shop type stuff. Yes, but like uh, done far more detailed, far more like richly rendered. But in essence, it is just that. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge trend I've seen in fine art over emergent over the last 10 years. Um, on the illustration side, everything uh, for, that I do for commercial outlets is after hashtag authenticity you know mm. we we're making faux biker shirts from the 70s we're, we're taking in some cases if, if it's a licensor we're taking a, a, an image for uh an old rock and roller and we're recreating it painstakingly but now it has the cracks of an old plastisol graphic already built in right? Mm. Uh, the edges are already frayed. The shirt comes a little bit fucked up and maybe some edges are ground off of it in production. And uh, the, the sort of well-worn rock and roll t-shirt is ready off the rack at this point. So that's kind of something that I've, I've not only seen, I've like been at the forefront of this for like the last 10 years in like commercial illustration for apparel applications. That's one of the things that's so surprising to me when I look at that, like all of the like husky dudes who had eczema that chain smoked too much and like painted houses with their dad on the weekend that were really into like deicide and nile that i would watch gore movies with and the heavy metal drummer's basement i hung out in uh that is like cutting edge apparel aesthetics now <laughs> you know when really it was just like a dude who owned four heavy metal t-shirts and never showered and that's why they look that way yeah. But it's just on a, you know, it's on a very slight frame and the model is like gender ambiguous with like straw straight hair. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a brand out there right now that is, uh, uh, I, I like refuse to say the names of like brands on. on yeah, this. that's fair. But they do like, uh, like literal narcotics anonymous graphics now. Like, dude, like, that's profoundly dark. That is on like a real tree body of the shirt. So it's like. Not only is it like stealing valor from like maybe NA, it's like also like stealing like redneck valor somehow. I don't know. It's, that's, it's, it's dude, bananas. That's, that is. That and the is layering so of wild. that is is the the sort of avant-garde like push, right? It's like mm -hmm. it's the knowledge of these two like sort of disparate, perhaps overlapping like segments of subculture that like just get put in a blender and then you know squeezed out the other end of the toothpaste tube into culture. There's, I mean, that's only one case. There's a million things like that. It's, con it's actually legitimately confusing at this point, maybe intentionally so. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really fascinating to me is like the Zoomer nihilism trend, which comes with the level of absurdity. Like there was a big, like, um, 
sort of millennial disenchantment irony that was big on like weird Twitter and, sure. you know, was part of, you know, early memes were so earnest, like even oh, when they were vile, you know, and then that changed over time. Like the fact that like the looking at the old Lord of the Rings memes from like, yes, the early 2010s, like one does not simply, you know, do yeah. blah, 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 uh, is so different than like what the Zoomers are up to which is like, I just makes me, I feel like the crypt keeper looking at some of these memes. I'm just like, I'm so old. Yeah. It's, I was, I was uh, interviewed for another thing uh, a few months ago in this, in this written thing about the comic. And someone was talking about like what the future of like the internet landscape is going to look like. And I said something like um, unintelligible by design, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. in order for a movement to not be co-opted, it has to be obfuscated from the start, A. B, it helps if it's not named, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so all of these like barriers to entry for people like you and I are built into these subcultural mimetic movements intentionally. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the point. We're not supposed to know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> God right, bless right. them for it. Maybe you'll have staying power because of that. Right. I remember Chris Ott, Chris Ott doing a video called The Hiding for Shallow Rewards, where he talked about limited run cassette tapes okay. becoming a thing. And he was like, this is the only way, if you're interested in music, for these kids to figure out how to create their community and set up barriers to it. Yes. Is that you have to manufacture a type of scarcity. But of course, you know, so when he's talking about kids, he's talking about like when I was in my early to mid 20s. Right. So this is a while ago. Um he was like, and of course they all grew up playing Pokemon and Magic the Gathering. <laughs> so like rarity is like how they think that this, yeah. this can be done. And I think for Zoomers, because they don't give a shit about physical media, they have no real memory of it. For them, it is obfuscation and in-jokes. Exactly right. Because someone's going to stumble across it just because it's on the internet. The point is, is to prevent them from understanding. It. Yeah, yeah. I had this other question because I think about this a lot. I think about, you know, how I became the writer I am. And like when I'm writing, like whose head is perched right there. It's like Christopher Lash, it's Joan Didion. It's like, you know, Raymond Carver, like a few other people, right? And I'm wondering like um, how that works for you as a visual artist. Like what? how do you see yourself in relations to your forebears and uh Basically, what does the past look like to you as an inheritance? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, well, for the comic stuff, because I'm writing and illustrating all that stuff, it is sort of the same. Like, you know, there's a little Nick Land and a Mark Fisher up there, and there's probably a Harry Cruz on the shoulder somewhere or uh, a Thomas McGuane. Uh, You know, I, I sort of like, I try to keep that sort of... Um, distant uh sort of like masculine voice of those like western writers i like but through the lens of of uh something that is a bit more analytical of culture uh as far as the illustrations go um i'm a bit of a style nomad i've uh, had to be as a commercial illustrator but if there's a couple touchstones i always go back to uh i think of ken price uh, the kind of west coast california surf artist uh i think a lot of Paul Kirchner, a comic book artist, Jack Kirby, obviously. And then kind of 
in my teen years, the image guys, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, uh, Mark Silvestri. God, their impact is like so hard to undersell if you grew up when image was happening. I mean, it was like, how can you not mention them? Like they're in the DNA. When I do any kind of cross hatching, I'm like, oh, that's a gym lead. It's funny. I was looking at the Kali Yuga Eschaton thing and I was just like, this dude loved Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man run. Oh, loved. Like, <laughs> I was like, because I used to work at a comic shop. So I was okay. like, so I was like, oh yeah, like I I know this visual reference. Like, I put that up on my sleeve sort of intentionally in the hopes to catch someone being like, okay, yeah, cool. Uh, but also part of it, like I, I can't even help anymore. Like I totally, like, <laughs> it's in there. No, there are certain paragraphs I write where if somebody looked at them, they would be like, that's Didion's rhythm. Amazing. Right. It's the you same know, kind of, yeah. where it's just like I'll hit this moment where I'm trying to make an elaborate point and I just instinctively upload her paragraph structure <laughs> where you like set things next to each other and then have a totally deflating sentence at the end yes I know what you mean yeah like because she was the 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 artist of juxtaposition uh, oh, yeah. for, for, for her nonfiction, especially about politics at a certain point I was trying to put that in as reference and then like it became me yeah, it just, it sticks at a certain point. Like, uh, you know, I've heard it said that your illustration style is not uh, your attempt to go in one direction or another. It's the mistakes you make in trying to get something done quickly. And oftentimes that becomes some sort of referent because it's in the wheelhouse. That makes total sense to me. Like uh, in our last Patreon episode, we were talking about uh, McIntyre's um, discussion of Aristotle's impact. Okay. Right. And basically what you realize is that like what we call tradition is really inheriting problems. Ah, yes. And those become the framing devices through which we understand what's happening. So it's not that everybody agreed about Aristotle. It's that they were working with similar assumptions and similar problems to try to resolve what Aristotle had put on their plate by the time they translated him. That's very interesting. Yes. Is there anything you've seen lately where it's like that person's been reading my mail? Uh, it doesn't happen in comics yet because they take so long to make I'm not Mm -hmm. assuming it will but uh, I haven't seen it in the work Um, I really like writing about movies on my Instagram page for Mm -hmm. stories I write these little like quick blurbs and I've seen those like maybe stylistically referenced here or there Uh, the most like cringe phrase that's always in the back of my head that like I can't escape is that you can't invoice for your impact on the culture. Yeah, and you like, can't. I mean, it's, it's totally true. It's, it's totally so crazy, true. but like, it's just one of those things. Like if someone gets a piece of what you're doing and they want to run with it, uh, you know, sincerest form of flattery. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I also mean, is there like somebody who's done something where you're just like that scratched an itch that I didn't even know I had, like when you're watching oh. something or looking at a piece of art, or you're like, yes, that is one of my like main aesthetic concerns and it's been really well realized here. Well, something that is from the past, but I've only recently latched onto is I just read Burroughs' uh, Cities of the Red Knight. Mm. That book fucked me up, man. Crazy time travel, sex magic, identity uh, as problem. Just absolutely crazy. And fusing together sort of like, a material politics and a, a strange supernatural idea that there is more to 
our uh, chronological lived world experience, those two things really hit home and sort of articulated some things that I had been thinking about that I couldn't put together in my own head. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. For me, it's been um, this movie that just came out. I'm a big horror movie guy. I love horror and Shudder, which is like if Netflix were only horror, like that's its thing. So they do like exclusive runs of things. And one of the ones I really liked was like, it was shot on a shoestring, but it was called Caveat. Okay. And I highly recommend it. Like, I don't want to explain too much. Also, it's really hard to like explain. Okay. But what I liked is that it set up like this ambiance of just like totally confusing terror and like refused to justify itself or explain itself as the plot moved along, except for major moments in character development, right? It's just for the plot stage. Right, exactly, exactly. Like the first shot is this girl walking through a dilapidated house, holding a toy rabbit by the ears. And when she points it in certain directions, the toy rabbit starts beating this little drum. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is about, but like this rules, (laughs) you know, it's clear she's using it like this lantern to like guide her way. Yeah. To like figure out where she needs to go. And I was like, this is wild. I'm in. I'm in. Sounds great. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to me, like more than obfuscation, more than in jokes or whatever, I would put this in a separate category is the importance of mystery. Yes. And that mystery for art is foundational because if it's just ambiguity, that has its own values, but it also means that nobody knows. The joy, the agony and the ecstasy of mystery is that someone knows, but it might not be you. (laughs) Exactly. So I think we'll leave it there, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, check out the comics. They're going to be in the show notes. Um, As always, stuff we reference from Blade Runner to Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man run will be in the bibliography linked there. Sterling, it was a joy. Thank you so much. Avoid the void. All right. Stay safe out there, guys.